Welcome to Meeting What. I'm Matt Wiseman. Today we're going to talk about third parties. What is the history of third parties? What is the history of third parties in the U.S. system? How are they traditionally viewed? Uh, what are the challenges the third parties face? And then what are the state of the race in 2020? Those are the main segments we're going to talk about. So let us begin. Section one, history. Of the first hundred years of the United States of America, we had uh, essentially multiple parties. There was no established two-party system. The two-party system really became fermented um, in 1850s when they really decided there was going to be a single-member districts and a winner-take-all or first-past-the-post elections. So that makes us unique in representational democracy, where in other representational democracies, the parties decide who the candidates are, and there's a lot of loyalty to those parties. In the U.S., we have a primary system, and we have a caucus system where we continually call on the people to be more democratic, but that could also lead to um, voter exhaustion because there's too many choices or even voter apathy because the, the election process never seems to stop. You know, even now in the, the 2020 presidential elections, we've been going through the primaries for over a year and our president, Donald Trump has never stopped. He's never stopped campaigning for his re-election. So these issues, this campaign, indefinite campaigning, is part of the reason we have such low turnout. In addition to that, there is this distrust within the party, uh, within the party membership and those who vote for those parties, even if they're not within the membership. Um, there's a lot of distrust in our elected officials and the governor, uh, the governance of the country, its leadership, and, and even in our media. So these are some of the most hated institutions. Uh, Congress is especially hated. Uh, and they're not really doing anything to change that. There is a Harvard study from um, Porter and Gell, and the title is Why Competition in Politics Industry is Failing America. And one of the things they talk about is one side, it's being this duopoly. If one side takes money from the other side by taking votes, then they are basically inciting citizens to vote based on anger and fear. And the, they explicitly say that the uh, media is complicit. Um, they also make the point of pointing out the private political industry so this is all the, um, as um, Sager and, and Crystal on the Hill Rising say, the private political industry is called the, the grifters. But it's more than that. 
is basically the private and rational self-interest of partisanship. And they're, they're block, they, they get rewarded for blocking popular legislation that the public have an invested interest in by their party. And the, they are not penalized by voters for going against the public will. It's all but expected, especially in today's days, um, in today's governance. And so these aligned political professionals, you know, and it, and it goes from professional campaigners to lobbyists to donors to media. It really is a whole stacked industry that is making tons of money off of pushing an agenda that is self-serving and not in the public's interest. Now, these allied um, political professionals lock out third-party options intentionally to deny any kind of common ground and to, to worsen partisanship and political division. There's also some achievements that I wanted to mention that third-party people, uh, third-party candidates have successfully done over the years, and we can't discredit that. Uh, the women's suffrage movement, giving women the right to vote, the unemployment compensation, the direct senatorial elections, all of these were because third-party movements. So there has been successes in the past. That being said, once the, the, the GOP and the DNC got together in the 1850s and decided they were going to be in the, you know, even a couple years after that, they decided they were going to be the two parties that were in control. They have not lost an election since the 1850s. So it's just to illustrate there is can be success, but it's been overwhelming. And we need to think about that when we're going to support a third party project because it is a longstanding project. But the magic number that we have to keep in mind is 5%. So what is, what is the significance of 5%? Well, 5% uh, is the amount of votes you need to get in a general election to unlock matching funds for your election campaign from the federal government, because the federal government does supply funding on presidential elections. And that allows you to automatically be on the, well, not, I don't think it's actually automatic on the ballots, but we'll, we'll talk about some of the, the challenges. But that 5% is very important because then you can have the same as everybody else on a baseline. Now, the Democratic and the um, Republican parties have refused that money from the federal government because they can't have unlimited contributions from private industry. So you either accept the money from the government or you have unlimited. So the, the, the money, the federal money comes with caveats, with limitations. So if you don't take it, you don't have to correspond with those. Some, some problems that come, the challenges that are built into the third party system. The explicit challenges are gerrymandering, where you have whoever wins an election, they get to choose who they want to support them, their constituency, after the fact. Um, 
instead of the voter choosing the representative, lobbyists and big money influence, inadequate disclosures of campaign um, contributions, dark money, closed primaries where only people within the parties can vote for a potential candidate. Citizens United basically equates money with speech. So there's unlimited anonymous political spending allowed because of Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court. Uh, some sore loser laws. So in 44 states, it makes it almost impossible for you to run a third party if you lose a primary election. Um, there's presidential debate blackouts. So the media just does not include you. You are not allowed to be on national television and make your case. So some solutions that we can actually deal with some of these things. Fair access to debates and media, uniform ballot access law, proportional representation as opposed to this first past the post. So instead of everybody, whoever gets the plurality, right? Not the majority of votes, but whoever gets the most of the people that are running, they're the ones who get all of the delegates, they get all the spoils. That's what we have currently. To change that to proportional, then whoever, whatever you get, you keep, you know, which is in the, the DNC primaries, it's similar to that. You get to keep and you can kind of negotiate your case. Well, if you're having multiple parties in this system, then you can keep whatever portion of the votes and those voters are still yours and allow you to have a portion of the power in the office. So you don't just have a single member district. You can have multiple members in your district where you're having multiple people legislate on your behalf. That changes us automatically from a duopoly into a multi-party system where you have to have coalitions to run. You have to govern in a coalition because everybody's vote matters and it gets reflected, right? Um, so the coalition with the most votes wins uh, as opposed to just whoever gets there first. Um, other solutions, open primaries, for everyone, you know, independents, Republicans, and Democrats all alike, where the top four uh, candidates in the primary go to the general. Uh, my wife's from Argentina, this is how they do it. The, um, if you don't get enough votes, and even if you're an incumbent, you're not even going to be in the general. So the top four people that go through that primary election are going to be in the general election. Uh, ranked choice voting with instant general election runoff. So your vote matters and it will be counted. And if that first person doesn't make the plurality, then your vote goes to the next person. So you're never losing your vote. It gets to transfer to the people that you want it to go to. So you can definitely vote your conscience and you don't have to, if you want to vote defensively later on down, um, down on your ranked choice, then you're allowed to do both of those. That'll allow you to speak your mind, but also be defensive. If you really don't want to elect you know, Blankenship, then you don't have to vote for Blankenship at all in your ranks. But if you're like, well, um, Biden is better than Trump, but Bernie's better than that, and Yang maybe is going to be at my top, whatever your choice is, but you're allowed to do that with ranked choice voting. Uh, Nonpartisan redistricting, um, so nobody gets to decide who the gerrymandering, you know, that's a, a nonpartisan group that gets to decide what the districts are. Um, 
reform campaign finance laws for congressional. So right now, Congress spends about a third to a half of all their time just trying to get money from lobbyists. And they're not even able to do their job. Uh, it's one of the reasons they're hated. So you can change that by having public funding or small dollar, uh, small donor contributions, uh, incentives, so that we can have maybe matching from public. There could be a combination of both those things. But those are solutions to deal with the the camp, the big money in politics. Um, democracy dollars is also something that Yang put forward. Just give everybody these vouchers to be able to give money to people who they believe in, and it, you know making money for campaigns won't be so dif uh, so difficult or influence the outcomes. And full retail, uh, real-time disclosures of all political funds raised and spent, elimination of dark money. Um, these are the activist aspects where we can change what the perspective is going forward so that we can allow third parties and actually more of a fair uh, system of electing our officials. Just kind of take the partisanship out of the election process and the governing process so that we can just get back to some kind of common ground, get back to some kind of progress so that we don't have things skewed against us, the American people, that there is not a disincentive to put the public interest first. Um, some results of these forms will be a more stable government. We've seen this in California where the government had a 10% approval rating. Now they have a 50% approval rating and all they did was open the primaries. So if everybody can vote and they can vote their conscience and they can say what they want to say, it allows people to have more faith in the product and you know more trust in their government. Um, higher approval by the electorate. And you, you, even if you have these reforms, you still get challenged by the media and academics. They just can't drop their partisan lens. They, they spend careers um, just being these people who are partisan. And so in order to change that, it's very difficult for them. Uh, and you, you have a problem there. And if we're just going to have to overcome that, either replace these people that have made their careers and have this ideology that is so cemented, or they can change with the times. You know, careers like that, I think you're probably better off replacing them. You know, these are authority figures. And if they change, doesn't that say something about them? You know, if you get a James Carvel, you kind of know what you're getting. And it's time, you know, it's past time he was not on TV anymore. For our last part, we're going to talk about the current state of 2020. So in 2020, we have, we don't have many good choices. We have Trump, uh, we have Trump, we have Trump as the incumbent who's going to run on the Republican ticket, pretty much guaranteed. Um, he might sink the party. We don't know. I mean, with the, the events of the last week or so, I, they're saying that he could have a Herbert Hoover moment where they lose 150 something seats in the Senate and, and in Congress and they lose the White House. 
COVID-19 is a, is a huge issue and the handling of that and continuing mismanaging of that and the abdication there has been awful. And the accident of history that happens to be Joe Biden is also awful. And the, the terror read allegations are getting more and more clear that he is, that his alleged sexual assault campaigns, uh, 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 sexual assault allegations are legitimate. I think there's four or five people that can confirm that at the time that, that these things happened. So he's not even addressing those. So the, the, the absence of Joe Biden and the mishandling and the mismanagement of Donald Trump is pretty serious. But in 2020, we have these options and they're not very good options. But we also have third party options. So what are these third party options? Well, you have primarily the libertarians and the greens. So there's also the constitutional party, which is a little um, blip. I'll just get out of the way right now. Don Blankenship from the fame uh, coal miner, Don Blankenship, well, he went for West Virginia's senatorial campaign and lost. And he, he liked to call himself Trumpier than Trump. Um, he's trying to get on the, the ballot in, um, in West Virginia so that he can run and the Constitutional Party, which is more Trumpier than Trump. It's exactly what he says it is. Uh, so there's that. Libertarians, obviously, you had Gary Johnson last time in 2016. and the Greens, you had uh, Jill Stein. Uh, the ballots are important, right? So every state has to put them on the ballot. They have to get signed petitions to get on the ballot. So in order to get those signed petitions, they have to canvas. Well, they can't canvas now that we're in a pandemic. But in 2016, the Libertarians were on all 50 states' ballots. Now they're only on 35. And the Greens in 2016 were on 44 ballots, and they've never been on all 50. Uh, and now they're only on 22. So even if you wanted to write them in, it might not be counted because they have to be official write-in status from your state. And a lot of states, they either didn't get around to it or there's some resistance. Um, when somebody like Hillary Clinton is going to throw you under the bus, it makes you not such a fan of certain people that are in the election commission. Uh, we can see now that um, that... Bernie Sanders in New York City was taken off the ballot and he's still a Democrat and he's still going to be at the convention. So it's very concerning that he would be taken off the ballot. That being said, they, they, the 500% threshold is the one that they need to kind of get matching funds from the Fed. Now, how can they get that if they're not on the ballot? Their, their solution has been they're trying to get the courts, they're suing these states so that they can get these petition requirements waived. And how do they get these petition requirements waived? They have to get waivers from the states so they don't have to get these signature requirements, these petition requirements. And Vermont is already okay to waiver. They already had libertarians on the, the ticket, so they included the Greens this time around. The big resistance um, that they're suing right now and they're making a case for is in Illinois and Georgia. 
for the Greens to be allowed. The, the leadership of the Green Party is likely Howie Hawkins. You know, Jesse Ventura has kind of flirted with saying he's going to be part of this. Will that remains to be seen. And for the libertarians, it's John Hornberger, who is an ally of Ron Paul's to kind of give you an idea of who he is. Uh, he's leading in the contest and the contest. Um, there's other contestants as well. Uh, Justin Amash, uh, famous for hating Trump and wanting to impeach him. He is potentially going to run for the libertarian party as well. So these kind of remain to be seen. Right now it's Jacob Hornberger and Howie Hawkins. So that was a little bit about third parties. The potential for them winning is still very long. There needs to be a lot of advocacy. There needs to be a lot of changing. Um, on a side note, the, the, the idea, the policy positions of the Greens is much closer to what Bernie Sanders was running on than Joe Biden is running on. And yes, Joe Biden, you could say that he was coming to the left, um, even though it's not as far left as Hillary Clinton was. You could say he's making concessions, but a lot of this could just be talk until there's policy commitments. As long as Larry Summers is there, I don't know if I believe Joe Biden at all. In fact, you know, I believe Tara Reid. So Joe Biden's a rapist in my eyes. He's a sexual assaulter. Um, and maybe that doesn't disqualify him for some people, but that makes him very difficult for me to kind of consider as a serious candidate for president of the United States of America, especially one that represents me when we have somebody that is my ideal candidate who basically came in second and is not even allowed to be on the primaries. I've never seen such blatant disrespect for the voter as the, this primary election. I've never really seen how awful it can be from the democratic point of view, um, uh, with suppression and election fraud and voter fraud and, and all of these things that they just kind of let happen. And so it's clear to me that we need reforms. So some of the reforms are the reforms I mentioned that'll help this country be more democratic to put power in the hands of the people, because that's where I believe it belongs, especially the working people. And the way that this pandemic was handled, the working people are just proven to me that they have they have the power in this nation. They are the heart of this nation, and we have been neglecting them. Almost every other first world nation, every other democracy in the world has a workers' party, has a labor party, has, you know, they're still they're going to be the corporatist party. But they all signed up for relief for workers. That relief bill for workers was one of the first things. Small businesses was one of the first things that they handled. And we haven't, we've, we've neglected small businesses. We've helped out the major corporations. And then maybe we're going to help out workers again, give people a one-time payment. And that's just not sufficient. I think it's like $7,000 a month, up to $7,000 a month if you were a French citizen. So the amount that we're doing for our people is insufficient. And our, our elections are insufficient and our leadership is insufficient. So there's a lot of caveats here. There's a lot that could happen. 
And I want everybody to know that it's okay to, this is my belief, but you can vote your conscience. The voter is never wrong. The voter is allowed to choose who they think is best to represent them. And no one can shame you. Shame doesn't work. No one can, you know, berate you. If you're voting for, you know, a symbol of hate, then yeah, you know, there might be some kind of blowback from that. But I honestly believe that voters are intelligent, voters are compassionate, and voters are going to vote their values. And there's real reasons. So if you disagree with somebody and how they vote, you should go at it with curiosity, you should talk to them, and you should try and understand their position. But I really think if we had a government that cared about democracy, if we had these um, ingrained institutions challenged and refuted, um, that we would have a very progressive agenda on the platform in, in government. And we would have more equality in this nation. I just don't believe the fact that, you know, MAGA people are all bad. I don't, I don't believe that that voters of any other kind of opposition are, are wrong for how they vote. I have, and I also don't believe that voters voted for Joe Biden. I don't think that happened. I think that there was suppression. I think there was election fraud. I think that they were um, closing voting sites they, they went ahead with voting that that could have killed people. And to what end? You know, I feel like the, the mainstream media totally mishandled the entire thing and that they have been complicit in misinformation and propaganda and blackouts. And it's not OK. And we need to break up what they stand for, what they are. You know, that's antitrust. That's laws. Laws need to come in place to say there was a problem here and this is how we're going to fix it. Thank you, everyone. Please follow me on the last outlaws. This uh, last week, I did a little segment on the pandemic and a breakdown about how COVID-19 works and what are our solutions that we currently have access to and information. There has been a little update that um, and there's a potential Oxford study that says that we could have a vaccine as soon as September, which is good. That's much sooner than we expected. So these rolling shutdowns won't have to be as long. And there's also potential information that people can um, get reinfected with this once they've had it. And that there's a lot of reasons that could be so. Um, so don't, I don't know, it could be a, a faulty test. It could be a testing error. It could be um, that we never actually got rid of it. It could be that the test is too sensitive and it's picking up dead and we can't differentiate. There's a lot of reasons. So it, we need to be aware of those. And there's one more article that came out. It was about um, strokes that people... Uh, that this disease can cause strokes in people in their 30s and 40s. So people that are a little younger that were potentially, potentially protected by all of this, they could they can get strokes in their brain, some massive strokes, and that could affect them the rest of their lives. So in addition to the pulmonary fibrosis. So it's just we should be aware of that and we should do all we can to protect ourselves, stay home and stay safe. Um, so, uh, yeah. 
come back next Tuesday, like, share, and subscribe, and I'll see you soon. Thank you.